everybody and everything we love will die. It's, it's embedded in this very moment. You know, how do we f not just accept the truth that we're going to die, but love the fact that we're going to die? You know, this whole idea that, we, you know, people want to live forever. Really? I mean, if you really play that through, that looks like hell to me. You know, how do we fall in love with this death part and recognize that it's right here with us? And it's not this mean grin reaper, it's this great teaching that wants to help us become more fully alive. Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Reverend Bodhi B, Executive Director of Doorway into Light, a nonprofit that seeks to reinvent and revolutionize the funeral home and funeral industry, transforming the business of dying and returning it to a sacred service. Bodhi is an ordained minister in the universal Sufi lineage, an independent funeral director, hospice volunteer, end-of-life bereavement counselor, as well as a grandparent, coffin maker, death doula, educator, artist, and entrepreneur. He lives on Maui, where he's also the founder and president of The Death Store, Hawaii's only community educational resource center and store for those who are living with a life-threatening illness, those grieving the death of a loved one, and those wishing to explore their own approaching death. We had a very stimulating conversation about dying, which I'm sure you'll enjoy, but first, Join us in Big Sur July 23rd to 25th for Reclaiming Your Authentic Power, a workshop led by the award-winning instructor Justin Michael Williams, author of Stay Woke, a meditation guide for the rest of us. In this dynamic three-day course, you'll learn how to build habits that help you uncover hidden fears, break toxic habits, and make practical changes to help you overcome personal patterns standing in the way of your goals. Find out more or enroll now at eslin.org workshops. And now here's my conversation with Bodhi B. Reverend Bodhi B, you're a minister, a hospice worker, a funeral director, green burial expert, coffin maker. My question to you is when you meet somebody at a party, what do you tell them that you do? <laughs> um, if I go to a party at all these days, um, mo most everybody knows who I am. <laughs> um, but um, it, that's funny. Um, I, went, I went and apprenticed at a crematory and I asked the, uh, the the guy that ran the crematory that very question, and because you know, how do you get a date if you uh, tell somebody you work at a crematory? And so he started just saying I was in he was in sales, and I and I thought that was. Um, but most most people know what I do when I go to a party, um, uh, but certainly you know I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an ordained minister that is the executive director of a nonprofit that um, works in the community. Uh, educational. We put on lots of programs, and uh, and we run a nonprofit certified green funeral home, and we do a lot of counseling and education. The ministry I'm ordained in is this uh, Western Sufi lineage, and a lot of people know me through my uh, teachings as a spiritual teacher. Mm. And a lot of people just know me because I've been here for 45 years on Maui, and that kind of itself makes me a, a somebody in in this community, although Maui's changed tremendously. And a lot of people have no idea who I am or what I do, which is which is great too. I, the paparazzi don't follow me into the stores as much anymore. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, so you're going to lead a, a course at Esalen called What's Death Got to Do With It? Embracing Aging, Dying, and Death as a Path to Living Fully. Can you talk to me about what you'll be teaching in this course? Well, as a someone who's been a minister and a, and a counselor for 35 years, very much uh, involved in how how do we how do we get people to wake up and how do we transform human consciousness? Because it became very clear to me at an early age that to be most effective in any area of life, the more awake we are, the more conscious we are of who we are and why we're here and connected to our calling and our purpose the more effective we're going to be in any area we choose to engage in life. So what I came to through my path as a seeker of what are the practices, you know, what are, what are the ways to become more embodied and realized in daily life, not as a transcendent experience to sit on a mountaintop, but how to engage in the marketplace in a very awakened, a conscious, open-hearted, kind and generous um, way. And what I came to was that 
nothing seems to shake us out of what I call the cultural hypnotic sleepwalk as a close experience with death. That is to say, uh, we see death all the time. It's all over the news. I mean, what's happening in India right now is horrific. And of course, what's happening all over the world, you could say, in some ways, it's just tragedy. There's so much tragedy in the midst of so much beauty and magic. And we're kind of jaded to it. And we're not really touched by death to some degree because in a way we've had to armor ourselves and protect ourselves. Uh, many of us are really too sensitive for what's happening out there. But what happens when somebody close to us finds out they're dying or when we get a diagnosis or we find out we're dying or when we get the phone call that somebody died that we love and care about, something seems to happen to all of us that shakes us out of this cultural sleepwalk and pushes us right into this place of how precious life is, how fleeting it is, what's most important in our lives, how quickly things can change. Those are the kind of things that to me I would call a very beautiful, powerful spiritual experience that brings us into the moment and brings us into the fragility and preciousness of life and 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 pushes us towards well what's most important and when we when we realize we may not have as much time as we think. And I call that a, really a close, a close encounter with death, a near-death experience. And we have been, as a culture, we're so, we're, so, we're so into the new and what's next and the new phone and the latest gadget. And we've pushed old uh, off the edge of relevancy. Everybody wants to live a long time, but nobody really wants to be an old person. And we're actually pressured to keep looking young and fit and active, even in our 70s and 80s. And I think it causes a lot of stress and anxiety, uh, especially at this time in the world when there is a lot of stress and anxiety about what's, what's happening and what's coming. So using death really as a, a teaching spiritual practice, really, to help us become intimately of friends with our approaching death and the approaching death of our everyone we love and care about that we're going to say goodbye to everyone we love and care about that you know that's one piece of it the other piece of it is when we tune to maybe it's not too soon to start thinking about the fact that we might die one day and we start doing the work of what I call preparing for death and not leaving it until we're on our deathbed when it's really hard to do that work and by engaging in that work now, and a lot of that work is about relationships. You know, there's too many times where somebody's on their deathbed wanting to talk to their son who's 6,000 miles away. Because there's so, so much, we, you know, we leave a trail, we're all leaving a trail. So that's another piece. And then the other piece is how can we really show up when the people around us that we love and care about are dying? You know, how can we meet that in a way that we can bring benefit to that, to someone who's dying? So that, in a nutshell, is really what um, has got me more and more into teaching about, you know, how do we tra transform ourselves? You know, how do we come, you know, people say to me, what do you think about life after death? And my answer usually is I'm more interested in, is there life before death? And how do we come, become fully alive and add beauty and uh, kindness to the world? When you work with people who have received a, a terminal prognosis, what are some of their common reactions that they have? Is there sort of anxiety that often people have to work with? Yeah, how, how, do, you, how do you help people? You know, again, this idea that when I ask 100 people, how many people know you're going to die and you don't know when, and 100 people raise their hands and look at me like, what a dumb question. But the truth is, when I look around, few people really look like they live like that's true. Most of us think we have lots of time this sense of entitlement that we deserve to live to 80 years old. Now, when it's a more realized experience and we live in that truth, not where we're just on the edge of, you know, oh my God, we're going to die and we don't know when. But, you know, I mean, that's the challenge, really. How do we dance and, and, and play around and goof off and love everybody in the midst of how fragile it is? So when you know you're going to die and you don't know when, it doesn't really come as a surprise to you when you find out you're dying. But because most people don't live in that truth, it's, it's a shock. It's a sudden, oh my God. And, uh, and of course, for most people, it is shocking. And, you know, sometimes, you know, those people go to see the doctor and they're not, they can't even hear what the doctor is saying because they're so in shock and, oh my God, is this really happening? 
So is there anxiety? Is there stress? Is there fear? Is there anger? Um, all of that and more uh, for most everyone um, I meet. I mean, some people are like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to meet that. I've been living my life uh, full enough uh, and have worked on myself and my relationships enough and I'm willing to engage in the work face forward of meeting my dying time. You know, when I ask 100 people, what's your favorite version of death and dying? As you can imagine, most everybody says, I want to die in my sleep. Now, what they're saying is they don't want to be dying for years and then die in their sleep. What they're saying is they want to skip the dying part altogether. Now, that's a really, that's a really big piece in, in my view because it's kind of like we don't see any value in dying. We want to skip the dying part. And we've seen too many horror stories either on TV or we've heard about them uh, to be afraid of the dying part since most people now are dying uh, in, in for long periods of time. Mm. And very few people think that's a good, that looks good. Yeah, I was listening to an interview that you did with Ram Dass. The two of you were speaking about the ego actually going through a process of dying when one knows that they are, are going to die in the, in the near future. I was wondering if you could, you could speak about that, about this transition from ego to soul. In, the, in our um, um, spiritual lineage, there's a, uh, one of the teachers said a long time ago, die before you die. And what he was speaking to was there's two kinds of death. There's the death we were just speaking about is when we stop breathing and our heart stops beating and our body dies. The other kind of dying is the, is the, is the dying of this sense of the importance of the self, the ego. And Ramdas didn't always, we didn't see eye to eye about the function of the ego. Um, I think the ego is a very critically important piece in terms of how spirit reveals itself through each of us that we have a viewpoint and and the fact that we all look different and see see things differently is a beautiful gift to the, to the universe because we're all creative in different ways because of the way we see but we get caught in thinking that we're this thing that's the separate self the separate isolated self and we're in competition with everyone else and everything else and it's all about me. In fact, we're in a culture where it's all about me. Just do it. Have it your way. Uh, independence, which I think is an illusion. There's really no such thing as independence. We're, we're all interdependent. So there's this small self that I would call the ego, which is critically important. And the problem is it gets bashed in this culture. Uh, the ego is the problem. The ego is the problem. And it's this, uh, basically, it's the replay of there's something wrong with us. And now we can call it the ego. And actually, there's nothing wrong with us. Uh, the only thing wrong with us is we think there's something wrong with us. And, and we've somehow disconnected ourselves from the holy itself. And we've disconnected ourselves from nature and think somehow we're above and beyond the laws of nature. And maybe that's the most shocking thing about finding out you're dying, is that it's the, it's the wake up call that just like everything else in nature, we die too. We identify with, you know, who are you? And how many people say, well, I do this job and I'm this active and I have this many kids and I have this family and I have this much money and I've traveled to all those places and on and on and on and on. Well, when you, when you find out you're dying, in fact, when you're dying, all of those things start to fall away. Here I am almost 70. I can't do the things I did so well in my 20s. Right? We, I had to let go of that. Letting go, letting go of this notion that I had to be somebody. Of course, as a kid, we had to become a somebody. That's the development of the psychology of becoming. And at some point, we have to realize, first of all, we're so much more than what we think. We're so much more than this body. We are connected to everyone and everything. And the holiness itself reveals itself right through us directly. And there's something much bigger going on. And we want to tune to that so that it guides us in our life. And how do we tune to that? We continually let go of this small sense of I, me, mine. And that's, a, that's the practice really of, I would say that's the practice of life. And in fact, change, we're so, we're so poorly trained in adapting to change. We don't like change. We like to know things are gonna be the way they are. We wanna be comfortable. We want it to be convenient. And of course, that's, that's the cause of so much stress and fear, especially right now at this time, because 
clearly we're not in control. Yeah, I'm curious, how long have you done this? Are you the only person you know who's in this work or has it become much more common to be a person who professionally grapples with death and helps people grapple with it? I think that's been going on forever, um, but certainly, but certainly, there's a movement now, and I think once again, the, uh, not just the baby boomers, but the baby boomers, who really have changed everything we've touched, pretty much, uh, alternative healthcare, uh, natural foods, organic foods, organic farming, on and on and on and on, uh, having babies at home. You name it, uh, we've touched it, and we've and 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 many of us have helped change it in very beautiful and powerful ways that are now part of mainstream culture. So now the baby boomers are in their I don't know 60s to 80s, are now watching their parents die and their friends die, and many of us started to look at well what's happening out there, and of course most people have had pretty lousy experiences in the dying and death world. Uh, which is pretty corporatized at this point. Even the hospice movement, which is such a beautiful, important movement, uh, for the most part, many new hospices are for-profit businesses because there's so much money in Medicare and insurance and government, and but also, consequently, it's becoming much more controlled and monitored. So there's a there's a movement now, uh, positive death movement. There's a number of fields where this is opening up. I mean, I don't think we're the only, we're certainly not the only green funeral home in the U.S. Uh, we're the only one in Hawaii. And in fact, we're the only nonprofit funeral home in Hawaii because um, our mission is really to help take it out of the world of business, money, selling you stuff. I mean, the other funeral homes on, on this island are, are owned by the two biggest corporations in the funeral industry in America. And if you look into it, funeral industry, the cemetery industry, the casket making industry, they're billion dollar industries often employing very toxic practices and people are paying too much money. Even death discriminates against poor people, not death itself, but to be able to deal with it. Can you talk to me a little bit about the environmental impact of corporatized death industry and the changes that you're attempting to make with your nonprofit in, in greening death? If we take the cemetery, for example, uh, how the cemetery came about was uh, initially everybody, um, when we were nomadic people, we buried grandma along the trail. Uh, and in fact, next year when we followed the herd, we knew where grandma was buried because the grass was taller there and we could go visit grandma. Then we settled down and uh, we were burying everybody, or, or certainly burying our family members in the backyard. Then there were churches and churches started to have cemeteries and people wanted to have their family members buried in the church graveyard. Then we became a more secular people and more uh, living in cities and that became the modern cemetery movement, which has taken over uh, more than a million acres in America. It's one single purpose, gravestones, taken out of the public domain forever. Removing land from the public domain forever for one single purpose. It doesn't make sense, and it's expensive. It's gotten very expensive. And, and most cemeteries force you to have either a plastic or a concrete grave liner, which is a box that the casket goes inside of. People are still buying expensive metal caskets that are getting buried in the ground. Tropical hardwoods um, from all over the world. A tremendous amount of concrete, plastic, metal going into the ground every year. And that doesn't account for the amount of embalming fluid because people are still being embalmed with toxic formaldehyde. Formalin is a known World Health Organization and a known cancer-causing chemical. Hundreds of thousands of gallons going into the ground every year. The cemeteries force you to have a grave liner for the most part to keep the ground level so that it's easier for them to mow. So we're talking about maintenance at, at the expense of your pocketbook. So, you know, cemeteries, concrete, plastic, metal, embalming fluid, not to mention the chemicals they sprayed on the grass to keep the grass down. It doesn't make sense and it's too expensive, which is why more and more people are turning to cremation, which is way less costly, but very poisonous to the air. A lot of fuel has to be burned. Quite a bit of fuel has to be burned 
the carbon from your body is going up in the atmosphere when it really ought to be returned to the earth. So there's a green burial movement to uh, not only not only be able to bury people, and we do, we'll bury people in uh, cloth shrouds or cardboard boxes or simple wooden caskets, and, and that's one of the things I do. I make a simple, pretty, in a hole, period. No grave liner, no box. Well, the green burial movement even went one step further where people can plant things on top of those graves who were scientifically proven to be good fertilizer. And then one step further is now cemeteries are partnering with conservation groups, right? Nature Conservancy, as an example, to where a cemetery is now becoming the economic engine to help maintain an open woodland or an open, you know, open space, a greenway, to keep land in the public commons for multi-purpose use recreation, contemplation, meditation. And, and also I would say <clears throat> to help us heal this separation between life and death. And we have, we have a model to actually take that step even further to create a community center uh, and a children's park in the midst of a green burial ground. Again, multi-purpose kept in the public domain forever rather than removing land for gravestones. You describe grief as the sister of love. Can you speak to me about the ways that you might not just help people who are grappling with, with dying themselves, but people who have lost loved ones? Uh, we used to um, officiate a lot of weddings, my wife and I, and, and sometimes I would say, you know, in making a vow to spend the rest of your life with, this, with your partner, included in that vow is that one of you is gonna witness the death of your partner. That's in the deal. If you're going to live the rest of your life with this person, and that's the truth, that we're going to uh, we're going to say goodbye to everybody we love and care about until they say goodbye to us. Everybody and everything we love will die. It's it's embedded in this very moment, and the, and a part of us is already grieving that we're going to say goodbye. We're going to lose this. Whether whether it's I mean, I read something the other day that said uh, in the next generation, there might not be any birds in the world. Boy, that doesn't make you cry. If you're paying attention, who's not grieving what's happening in the world right now? The tremendous injustice, the tremendous suffering, the, you know, nature on the run, the lakes that you can't swim in anymore, on and on and on. When people come to me for counseling because somebody's dying or they're dying or somebody has died, and they're having, they're having problems. Most often, almost always, the problem that they're having is they're either not allowing themselves to let the grieving have its way with them or because they want to be in control. And grieving's not about being in control. And also, you know, we're so addicted to doing things right that we're afraid we're not grieving right or our partner's not grieving right. And, we're, and who's more self-critical, uh, who's more critical of ourselves than we are? And constantly beating ourselves up that we're not doing it right or correctly, or what's the problem, or what's wrong with me, or how come a year later I am still, can hardly get out of bed because my husband died or my son died. And you go to see your friends and your friends are like, wow, maybe there is, maybe you do need to see, see someone, like there's something wrong. Of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong. And the notion that you're supposed to get over your grief uh, to me, it does tremendous uh, harm, detrimental harm to us as a people that we're supposed to get over it and move on and fix it and get back to work or whatever it is. In fact, not just to grieve, but to grieve out loud amongst your people together is tremendously, it's so big. It's Talk about village building, community building, you know, because we're all, we're, a lot of us are grieving but don't have a place to take it and don't feel like we need therapy. And we don't, in fact. But we do sometimes need our friends to keep an eye on us so we're eating and sleeping. And, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm around mothers who've, whose children have tragically died and they don't want to get out of bed. In fact, they wish they were dead. And don't get out of bed. And hey, I say don't get out of bed. Take as long as it takes and, and also you know, I want to make sure your friends are aware of making sure, you know, they're checking in on you and they're loving you and getting you out for walks 
and getting you into nature, which to me is the, is the greatest healer of them all, being out in nature. So, you know, we're, 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 you could say we're grief illiterate in this culture because we're such a business culture and it gets in the way of being efficient and getting back to work. That, again, that's done tremendous harm to us as a people uh, to feel that there's something wrong with us that we're still grieving. I'm, I, I've, I've, I met a woman who was grieving an abortion she had 40 years ago. You know, a amen. Amen. I mean, how could that not change you and live on in you and help shape who you are and who you become? Thank you so much for that. Are you a transgender, non-binary, gender fluid or gender exploring individual? interested in delving more deeply into your gender journey, sharing your experiences, and building community connections? Join Ben Geilhuf and Dr. Jen Hastings in Big Sur July 9th through July 11th for Gender Journeys, exploring identity and community. Your instructors will create a safe space for participants to explore how gender impacts, influences, and informs their day-to-day -day experiences with a range of lecture-based sessions and personal explorations, including art, movement, and journaling. Find out more or enroll now at esalen.org workshops. And now back to Bodhi B. turns of phrases really well you're, you're funny you, you've said death needs better PR and I'm, I'm wondering do you use humor to help people who are who are grappling with death and with dying well yes and it's a very it's a very fine line I want to bring lightness to it without treating it too lightly I mean I have a I made a t-shirt that says if found dead call the death store and it's got my phone number on it yes and I you want do, to bring you do have something called the death store yeah I'm sitting in the death store. You're looking at it, which is in a community educational resource center for anyone who's curious enough to want to educate themselves about death. And also people come in here who are dying or whose family member just died. And uh, people gave me a lot of uh, gave me a lot of grief about you can't call it the death store. I love what you're doing, Bodie, but you can't call it the death store. And, you know, I, I couldn't look myself in the mirror if it was the till we meet again store or the um, death dead and die are like taboo words in this culture now you could say the dog died you know the car died the phone died but most everybody says grandma passed away or passed on and um, again i think that's very harmful to us as a people yes i get it i know what passed away means graduates left their bodies transitioned i've heard most of them by now and I, I, I'm, I'm in alignment with pretty much all of them, although I don't like past. Um, it's too much like gas, you know. And, um, but to leave out death and die and dead is, is detrimental to us as a people. And so I just thought, well, I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to put it out there, the death store. And, uh, you know, I meet people who say they'd never come into a store called the death store. <laughs> I think there ought to be one next to every Starbucks in America or inside of every Starbucks in America. Or, um, you know, um, or, you know, I kind of backed off maybe every other Starbucks in America. But um, um, it ought to be in the community as it is in, in some cultures that death is part of village life. Uh, you know, in, in Bali, you know, sometimes the fam there's a whole procession of the, of the body being carried down through the village and everybody stops, you know, and, and, and in America, it's, you know, it's let's hide the whole thing and make it invisible, which is why most people haven't been around a dead body. And most people are freaked out about the whole thing because it's not part of daily. It's not in the mall. It's not in the community commons. And the most funeral homes want to actually protect you or think they're protecting you by keeping you away from seeing the dead body. It seems that there's so many different ideologies surrounding death with regards to what happens next. You've got the you know, the afterlife people, you got reincarnation people, uh, people who just believe there's nothingness. Do you find that differing philosophies help people who are grappling with this, this huge question of what's going to happen? Oh, yeah, sure. People that have a strong belief that they're going to go be with Jesus or they're going to go meet their, the, their loved ones who have died. Absolutely. Uh, a, a, strong, a strong belief, uh, however real 
I have no idea how real it is. You know, you know, it's interesting when you when you think about it. When people say, "Yeah, I'm going to go be with um, uh, my husband who died ten years ago," and and if you think about it, it's fascinating because he died ten years ago. Was is that the past? But you're going to die soon, and you're going to go be with your husband in the future. So where is your husband? Is he in the past or is he in the future? It's you know, it's a great, it's a fascinating question to consider in terms of what is time how does time itself work but yeah people are comforted and, and in fact people are very uh, anxious and afraid if they don't have a strong sense of where they think they're going and, and what about you have you come to have you been able to formulate a kind of philosophy or, or ideology around what what am i helping people accept you know what 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 will happen to this person who i'm counseling I know I'm I'm done with philosophy and ideology. I'm, 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 uh, but uh, but when I as I become more realized and embodied in the truth of who I am, which is really one of the points of being embodied as a human is to find out who you are and why you're here. That we in fact do have a purpose. In fact, we have a calling. And I could speak to what that means in terms of where is the calling coming from. When you find out who you are. It's obvious where you're going and where you're going to be when you leave this body. You know, people used to, I used to say, well, we're not the body. I don't say that anymore. I've seen, I've seen too much around, uh, I've met people after they're dead. And actually, um, it's been very moving uh, for us to actually get to connect and meet people after they're dead. Not in some, you know, strange a ghost-like way, but in just feeling them through their body itself. So I would say now that we're not just the body, we're way more than just the body. In fact, we're more than the mind itself. So I think, I, I, you know, I, I personally have a couple of different pictures about where, where I go. And um, I don't know if any of it's true. And uh, in fact, I, 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 love, I love the mystery. Not the Sherlock Holmes kind of mystery that wants to be solved, but the mystery that doesn't want to be solved, that just wants to be lived in, so that we're more in curiosity and wonder and openness than to think we have to know where we're going. But that's, but of course, that's very scary to many people, and and I think that's the practice of being alive is to. Uh, let let go of um, trying to control it all, and I think most of us are control freaks, whether we admit it or not. You know, we think we know what's going on, and we think what's going to we know what's going to happen next, and we want to know, and that causes a tremendous amount of anxiety, especially at this time. I mean, here we here we are a year later, and one day we were all wearing masks, and the day before, who would have imagined that things could change that quickly around the world? And we're maybe still in shock from that experience. And then we had uh, all of a sudden we had to self-isolate. And for people who've never had that experience, I'm sure that was very intense to self-isolate and be with yourself and look at all the ways you distract yourself to not have to actually sit there and feel what you're actually feeling. You know, so many of us are leaning forward. What's next? What's next? What's next? Rather than being fully embodied in this moment, and maybe because many of us don't want to feel what we actually feel, that we don't love our job, that we don't love our relationship, that we don't love ourselves. And we'd rather continue to what's next and lean forward into Facebook and entertainment and Netflix and whatever it is. We're great at it in this culture, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you name it. You know, we're, we, we, we are supreme in distractions. So then we had to self-isolate. And then, and then we had this close encounter with death. No, maybe many, most of us know people who got COVID and died. You know, all of a sudden, death is in the room. It always was. Nothing really changed, but all of a sudden, there it was. And again, maybe um, we're still in shock and 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 really grieving what has become of the story that's playing out. You know, how do we f not just accept the truth that we're going to die, but love the fact that we're going to die? You know, this whole idea that, you know, people want to live forever. Really? I mean, if you really play that through, that looks like hell to me. That nothing changes and we get to stay the same. You know, 
the beauty of if you garden and you see the how or or spend time in in wild nature not 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 you know not manicured nature but real nature you see that life and death are in this beautiful dance together interweaving it doesn't happen without death everything we eat comes from things that grew out of death what is soil it's not just dirt it's all this stuff that has died it's the bones of our people and the bones of everything else that has died that is feeding the food we eat no matter what we eat you know how do we fall in love with this death part and recognize that it's right here with us and it's not this mean grin reaper it's this great teaching that wants to help us become more fully alive too many of us are the walking dead and just waiting to die or waiting for finally i'm gonna you know i meet people who are wait a minute i can't be dying now i, I haven't gotten to live the life i haven't gotten to live my life yet these aren't young people either these are the people who live their parents life or their teacher's life or their friend's life or their culture's life and that's part of the reason why we're in the mess that we're in in the world today so yeah, we need better PR, and and I and sometimes I bring a lot of playfulness to it. But I, again, I, I I'm seen in a lot of different lights in this community, and I again I want to bring lightness to it without treating it too lightly. You know, death death is the experience of a lifetime. And Ram Ramdas said that death is like taking off a shoe that's too tight. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, and talk to me a little bit about your relationship with with Ramdas and how you came to work with one another first of all uh, i don't remember having died in any other lifetimes so i can't really say death is like taking off a shoe that's too tight that's what it looks like when i'm around people when at the moment when they actually die but i couldn't tell you i know that's true and actually i think many people are more afraid of the dying part than the dead part I think many people are actually freaked out about the dying part. They're freaked out about finding out they're dying. Sometimes you see the sign on grandma's door, don't tell her she's dying. Because we equate with knowing that you're dying with suffering. And I could, I could teach for half a day on suffering itself because we don't see any value in suffering. So Ramdas changed, changed my life when I was 17 and I saw Be Here Now and I started listening to some of the things he was saying. And he was 15 years older than me, but when I was 17, 15 years older than me, was he was an old, old person. And he was the first old person that actually made sense to me. Because when I looked around at my parents and their friends, they didn't know anything. They were just, you know, they were just caught in, in making a living and getting drunk on the weekends. I mean, that's a little generalized, but that's pretty close to how it was. And Ramdas made sense. And at a, and at a time uh, when I was 17 and 18 and, and starting to experiment with uh, marijuana and psychedelic drugs, he he broke through just as the, as the psychedelics did. They broke through. It's like that picture of the guy, uh, the painting of the guy sticking his head out of this uh, sphere of the world he was living in into and there's the universe and we've all seen that image and it was like that for me in fact right around that time my dad suddenly died and that whole world kind of cracked open and Ramdas was a voice that seemed to be a voice of sanity the first one for me really be here now and again there were only a couple of spiritual books around autobiography of a yogi for example teachings of the far east there were only a few really spiritual books out there in mainstream and be here now just cut right to it and so then you know then i then i started listening to ramdas and then uh, and then ramdas came to maui then and then ramdas decided to stay on maui and then ramdas moved down the street from me and at that time, Ramdas was inviting the community uh, of of spiritual people in that particular ray, bhakti, you know, devotional singing, to his home every Sunday. And we'd come over and we'd um, sing and chant and we'd have a meal together. And and I and I at that time, I had time. I had a truck. I had tools. Now I have a truck and tools, but I don't have a lot of time. And so I said to the household, hey, you know, if you ever need any help, um, I got tools, I have truck, I have time. And so they started inviting me over to do little projects for them. 
And then I and then I was working in Ramdas's bedroom, making a ramp for him so he could get in and out of the sliding door onto his deck without having to get somebody to help him. And 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 at this point, I was already uh, I had become a hospice volunteer. Uh, I was going and sitting in the homes of dying people, which I'd never done before. That was a new thing. It was like going to the school of how do people actually do this thing, and really studying how do people actually do this thing, the dying part. And, and, and then as a business person, I've had a number of businesses, I started looking around at the cemetery industry, the funeral industry, the casket making industry, and the institution, the hospice institutions, and the medical story of dying. And I thought, there's something really missing here. There's a, it's broken, there's something missing here. And I know that the Buddhists were speaking to it a bit. And Ramdas had actually st started a movement in the 60s around conscious dying. Joan Halifax, uh, Dale Borglum, Frank Ostaseski, a number of Stephen Levine, uh, a number of people. And so there was this conscious uh, death, dying movement um, that maybe had been going on, but Ramdas really brought it out into the, uh, the, our community. So then I started to, uh, so then I was already formulating, I wanted to start something that was bigger than just the Buddhists presenting something, and they do a beautiful job. The Buddhists uh, seem to have death more in the forefront of their story, um, e even though the Christians have Jesus on a cross. And, I st and I, so I was already starting to formulate starting a nonprofit with my wife around this whole piece, around education and trying to transform and at really taking the whole conscious dying and death movement forward doing my part to do that. And I started to talk to, um, I got, got to meet Ramdas. And at that point, Ramdas was like, I didn't have a big thing about rock stars and movie stars and um, famous athletes. I really didn't have that thing going, but I did have that thing going for Ramdas. So it was pretty tricky to actually be around Ramdas. Um, so I had to work my way through that. And he wanted me to work my way through that so that we could just be, you know, soul to soul, person to person. And we started talking and meeting each other and getting to know each other a little bit more as people rather than as Ramdas. And, um, and we did. And I told him what I was doing and what I wanted to do. And he said, well, I want to help you. I mean, obviously, I've been doing this work for 40 years. Um, I want to help you do what you're doing. And he became one of the founders of our project, Doorway into Light. And then, and then we put on a big event in 2006 basically to see who in the, in the Maui-Hawaii community was interested in this whole piece. And we invited some, some other teachers and, um, yeah, beautiful people. And a hundred and something people showed up for three days in the rain under a big white tent. And that really became the beginning of me and Ramdas, Ramdas and I collaborating on creating uh, events here. Uh, often inviting teachers from the mainland, often inviting teachers he knew that I couldn't just call up. And that became really the beginning of what became Doorway into Light and how it got to be how it is today. Well, that's, a, that's a, even a longer story. But uh, so Ramdas as a collaborator, as a mentor, as a friend, as a neighbor, we didn't always agree. I mean, we certainly clashed about this ego thing, but we saw each, we see each other. I mean, he's still very much in my life. He's, I keep him on the board. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of a, a bit about, I mean, Ramdas and I have been through a lot uh, together and I feel very fortunate that we got to be friends and collaborators for the really the last uh, chapters of his life. And then I got to help him, help him after he died. I got to, I got to help his staff uh, wash him and uh, prepare him and 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 really set him out so that the community could come sit with him for three days and then we brought him to our facility here uh, in our body refrigerator and, and uh, for more ceremony from the, his inner family and then we caravan down and and uh, and, I, and I helped uh, coordinate uh, his his people to be able to push him into the fire and start the fire you mentioned psychedelics in passing what do you think about that there's all these studies that are coming out right now i think through johns hopkins and the studies talk about the use of psychedelics with a therapist in order to ease some of the end of life anxiety i think at some point we're going to develop a piece of what we do here to help help guide people through psychedelic experiences who are dying 
And I think psilocybin and ketamine may be, the, uh, at this point, may be the most useful uh, medicines, and I call them medicines, um, to help people in their fear and anxiety. If you have a deeply spiritual connection and a spiritual practice, and you've already kind of opened up to the truth of who you are and how big we really are and how connected we really are to everything else, I don't think you need any psychedelics at all or anything really. Uh, a lot of people have not had those experiences to where those experiences have become embodied and realized. Lots of people have had cool experiences, but mo most people have not had that uh, experience become embodied and realized and the truth of how they walk in life or how we walk in life. And for many people that go into tremendous fear and anxiety, I think psychedelics can be extremely helpful. You know, oftentimes the fear and anxiety get in the way of being able to face forward work with dying, with dying as a practice and really not just for oneself, but we need to learn how to die well. And so we need models of people. We need to see people who are engaged in their dying face forward, meeting their dying and doing the work that is dying, that is really the work of completing one's life and coming to peace with one's life and healing relationships with oneself and with others and with something bigger than oneself and others. So in that sense, I think psychedelics can, will become uh, certainly one of the tools of how, how we embrace and meet our dying time. So there might be someone who's listened to this, this wonderful talk, this, this interview that, that you've created here, and they just feel kind of interested in this work. Do you, do you have any kind of advice for people who might be up and coming grief counselors or death doulas? Um, I'm hesitant to give any advice. Um, uh, um, uh, first of all, um, you called me, I think you called me a green burial expert. I don't consider myself an expert in any field. Again, I come back to what I said early on that the, uh, to be effective in any area of your life, whether it's a plumber or whether it's a counselor or minister or a nurse or doctor, uh, to the degree that you are awakened in your own being and to recognize the truth that we are souls meeting beyond the story of you dying and I'm the helper, that to be able to meet in that place soul to soul, that's where the greatest healing is. You know, we want to be seen. And so we need people who can see us. And so we need people who are awake enough and open and clear enough and big enough to see us. You know, sometimes I'm with a dying person and everybody else just sees the dying person. Oh, that's so sad. It's, it's you know, and 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 there and for them it can be really difficult to just be seen as a dying person. So then I meet people that don't tell anybody they're dying because they don't want to be seen as the person with cancer or the dying person because so much so we are so hungry to be seen all the way in. And so again, it comes back to how awake are you is how effective you will be in any field uh, you get into. And, and of course the grief thing, like I don't think we need grief counselors. I just think we need grief coaches. You know, people don't need to be counseled about their grief. People just need to be encouraged and supported to let it, let it take you. You know, let it have you lose control for a while and see where that takes you. Because what I see is nobody you know, nobody gets lost in that. And grieving itself is the healing that wants to work its way through to change us. So my advice to people in, in any field, but especially in this death and dying work, is to uh, cultivate a real deep spiritual relationship with something that is real and shows up in your life in the daytime. Reverend Bodhi B., Tell us how to learn more about your work, how to find you online or on Maui. Thank you. We, thank you, Sam. We've got a great website, doorwayintolight.org. Uh, we have a vision for a beautiful land project at ipuka.org, I-P-U-K-A.org. Um, 
email me. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm open to communicating with anybody that wants to reach out. Bodie at doorwayintolight.org. Uh, better yet, come come to Maui and come see, come actually meet us. And I have a great team uh, of people working with with me here. And uh, I think the death store really ought to be all all over the country. I'm not going all around the country to cut tapes at the death store. Not yet, anyway. Thank you, brother. Right on, Sam. Appreciate it. Discover new ways to harness your intuition and uncover profound insights about yourself with author Bill Donius. His upcoming workshop, Meet Your Better Half, Unlock Your Right Brain, is based on his best-selling book, Thought Revolution. With methodology developed for the book, this workshop will teach you how to activate the right side of your brain to unlock the insights necessary to break through self-limiting patterns. You'll develop practical tools you can apply each time you face an important decision in your life and go home with new ways to unlock your own inner genius. This workshop takes place August 11th to 13th in Big Sur. Find out more or enroll now at esalen.org workshops. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. Until next time, be well.